Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Find out how good you are. I know how good I am. Having three children with autism and being around them all the time, they make me better as well. If Lucas had missed that kick, I'd have been moving house. <laughs> but my favourite one that really made me was my love triangle with Triple H and Stephanie. And uh, how did you get this story? How did you know about this? Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. That's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technolwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former English rugby player. He has played 71 games for England and won the World Cup with England in 2003. Welcome to the podcast, Lewis Moody. Hey guys. Welcome, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, pleasure. What a lovely introduction. Thank you for that. I love what you're doing. It's a, it's a brilliant idea. Well, thank you very much. Um, we'd like to start our podcast off with a few quick-fire questions <clears throat> before we start talking about your rugby career. That's okay? Go for it. If you could go back to one year in your life, what would it be and why? Oh, Harvey. Um, crikey, that's a good question. Uh, obvious answer would be 2003, um, when I was 24, playing in, a, in an England team that won a Grand Slam and, and went on to win a World Cup. And actually a team that, that hasn't really got together since, other than at the 10-year reunion, which was in 2013. And, and we'll get together again for the second time since that moment uh, next year in uh, the 20-year reunion, which makes me feel like enormously old. I feel like granddad even mentioning that it was 20 years ago. So that maybe that would be, maybe that would be the year I'd go back to actually, because it was such a special moment in my life. And I was a young man, but the, the best bit of it by far and away was was being a part of a really unique team. Who's the most famous person in your phone book? <laughs> most famous person in my phone book? Oh, my goodness. Probably or maybe Greg James, Radio 1 DJ. Uh, yeah, a really lovely boat, and he's supported our foundation. So I have a foundation that... Um, supports young families with brain tumours and, and Greg's been brilliant. He loves his rugby and his cricket, obviously, for anyone that listens to Tailenders, but um, but just a lovely human being. Our last one before we start. Another tricky one. If you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Trade lives with anyone for a day? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, you need to give me some prep for this, lad. I mean, that, 
like that's like an hour that's a day's worth of thinking and falling <laughs> over and then getting it making a decision and then changing your mind <laughs> that's a good question um oh, who would who would i be for a day and why like i love it i love adventure and i love you know testing myself and, and i don't get to do a huge amount of that these days so who operates in that world i suppose bear grills he looks like he has an enormous amount of fun um, in really challenging and, and crazy environments. Um, so maybe maybe I'd, I'd step into Bear Grylls world for a day. A day of camping and drink your own, drinking your wee, what more do you want? <laughs> exactly. Sounds delightful. <laughs> Who were your sporting heroes growing up and how did you get into rugby in the first place? Uh, how I'll start with how I got into rugby. So I got into rugby when I was five and um, a mate of, well, so my mum's friend came over and her son was called Matthew Foster. And, and we sort of grew up um, playing together and what have you. And he decided to go down to rugby one day and asked me if I'd join him because I, th- I think maybe he was a little bit nervous again on his own. I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm guessing I was five. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but, um, so I went down and rugby was full contact then. So being a being a kid who was probably bigger than the average, it was something that I just developed an immediate affinity with. I absolutely loved it. Like the physical nature of the game, the outlet. I was never particularly academic. So having a, a physical outlet was huge for me. So Matt got me into it. And a couple of years later, he left and, and I continued, a, a, you know, a, a love affair with a game that lasts to this day and will continue for the rest of my life, I'm sure. And the other question was, I've forgotten. <laughs> Who were your sporting heroes when you were a child? Sporting heroes. So I was a, I, on a rugby pitch. I was a centre until I was about 17. And growing up, Will Carling was the England captain and also a centre. And I had the pleasure of meeting him when I was about 11. Um, I got a signed picture of Will Carling and it was two Lewis. Uh, I had it and I think I still may have it in the box downstairs because I remember seeing it a few years ago, which is pretty cool. But he was always one of my schoolboy heroes which people are always a little bit upset about because they think of me as this sort of roughy tufty uh, <laughs> back row player, not, um, <laughs> not, not a fancy Dan centre. Um, but the other guy was Chapel Walter Payton. So in the 80s, when I was at, um, at nursery or pre-prep, um, one of the kids' dads played American football for the Bears, Chicago Bears, and, uh, and he'd retired and he bought in a helmet. Uh, so I remember running around with the Chicago's Bears helmet on in the, uh, in the playground. And it happened to be the year later that the Bears went on to win the Super Bowl, first and last time they've done so. Uh, and since that moment, I've been a Bears fan. And there was a guy who used to play called Walter Payton, who was just the most incredible player. He's a running back, super physical. His nickname was Sweetness. But if you ever get a chance, just go Google uh, Walter Payton highlights. He was just amazing. Like the guy, uh, it's a little bit like watching Jason Robinson or maybe Marcus Smith, just his ability to stay on his feet. He was really physical. But yeah, they were my two sort of schoolboy heroes. Is it right that you started your career as a centre and full back? So how did you end up as a flanker? <clears throat> yes, yes. So absolutely nailed it. Sorry, I beat you to it with my earlier answer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was a centre, 100%. I was a centre, loved being in the backs. Um, and I think one of my coaches, Andy Walsenholm and Brian Welford, when I was at school, um, recognised that I maybe didn't have the... Uh, the skill sets, the natural skill sets to take it, my playing abilities as a centre any further. So they moved me into the flank on a, on a county trial and that was it. I found my epiphany. It was like running around, tackling people, smashing people. That was the best bit. Diving on the ball, getting super duper muddy, not worrying about all the uh, sidestepping and stuff. So, uh, um, so yeah, I was never a fullback though. Um, I did, I moved, so I moved through the forward position. So I went uh, inside and out to the centre and then I went number eight second row for a year which I really didn't enjoy and then finally on to uh on to six and seven which was great fun and I've loved ever since actually I tried to convince one of my coaches at Leicester Tigers John Wells to move me back into the centres for a game when I when I made it into into the premiership but um it never happened <laughs> <laughs> quite rightly so as well at the time are you are we right in saying you're the youngest player to ever play for Leicester Tigers and how did it feel being such a young a young man in making a debut? 
yeah, that's absolutely correct. So I was I was 18 and like 36 days or something. When I left school, my, my school coach, Ian Dossa-Smith, who was also a Leicester Tigers legend, he had like 300 games for the club. He was also a back rower. He asked me to go go down to the Tigers and see how I got on. And I was hugely nervous, right? Because all I all I did as a kid was was watch Leicester Tigers go sit in the stands, watch the games on TV, watch England and a lot of the Leicester's team of that era, Rory Underwood, Dean Richards, Neil Back, Graham Ramsey, Martin Johnson, etc., were were part and parcel. Go back a few more years, Les Cuthbert, Les Cusworth, Clive Woodward, Paul Dodge. I mean, they were there were lots of players from Leicester. Um so it was really strange when two and a half months after having left school, <laughs> I was asked to play for Leicester for the first time. I mean, you know, I was running outside, you know, I was running alongside all my heroes, like, you know, the guys that I'd grown up watching and and, one, and pretending to be in the garden. I was an only child, right? So I used to run around pretending to be all the 15 different England, English players. Um, there's probably a, you know, sports psychology survey in there somewhere. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I used to love it. And having the opportunity to, on the pitch of them was hugely um, over overpowering in many ways. Like trying to keep control of your emotions as quite an emotional young man, anyway. You know, passionate, um, fairly eccentric young chap that I was. Um, trying to keep a lid on all that was was difficult, but I managed to. And actually, on my debut, I scored two tries. Um, but my league debut, which you were talking about, was two months later. Um, and I thought I would, you know, continue that vein, vein of form, scoring at will. It was a very different <laughs> ball game. I, I, yeah, it was like a schoolboy in a man's world, which is exactly what it was. I got, I got ragdolled, thrown around, you know, spat out of rucks left, right, and centre. But uh, you know, I, I found, you know, I found my calling. I knew what I needed to do and work on if I was going to continue in this game. And it took me a, maybe a year and a half, two years to fully establish a place in the side. But eventually, I. I did. You started playing for Leicester the year after rugby became a professional sport. Did this help you as a teenager coming into a professional team? And did some of the older players find it difficult to adapt? That's a good question. So it was the summer of 96. I left school as an 18-year-old. And the people that you're talking about, like Rory Underwood, were nearing the end of their careers. Who, you know, England's highest ever try scorer still is. I think it's with 47 in 80-odd games, 80-odd tests, and Dean Richards and chaps like that, they'd been their entire career as amateurs. And then all of a sudden, I leave school and enter professional world for the first time. My first job was as a professional rugby player. And, and I think it took a lot of getting used to for some of the senior guys. I mean, maybe a little bit of resentment that it's come at such a late stage. I remember Rory moving to Bedford Blues and playing a season or two there. But yeah, it was a strange time. And I think, you know, we treat at the time, it was treated as like a normal job. So you worked from nine to five. So you got in there early um, and you worked until five and, you know, they, they tried to understand and figure out how that would then evolve and how you fit, you know, how you break down the week. So you're not all absolutely shattered by the time you get to the game. Um, but it was a real evolution. And I would say it took uh, until Clive Woodward, you know, took over, England in 98, 99, it probably wasn't until 2000 that the game really became professional. And Clive introduced lots of elements and coaches from different sports and uh, and backgrounds that, that really brought rugby into the professional world. And at Leicester, we were lucky. We had a guy called Bob Dwyer who came in, who was an Australian. And the Aussies, as much as I don't like to admit it, um, were definitely ahead of, ahead of the game when it came to their professional attitude towards sport. They had the AIS, the Institute of Sport over there, bringing through young players, whatever sport that they were they were looking at. Um, we, we were lucky to have him from 97 to 99, I think. And that really helped bring Leicester forward in that era as well into the professional era. But it took some time, I think. Yeah, we spoke to Sir Clive Woodward uh, back in January well, last month about on the podcast. And he was saying how it took him a year or two to kind of get, get his head around moving from moving into professional, being a professional coach. Um, it's actually really interesting hearing he and him speak. But um, you know what? One of the, just, just chat about Clive really briefly. Like one of the interesting things about Clive was, and and this is my take on it. Is that he was he was a gifted coach, he was a gifted businessman as well, you know, ran a ran a good business. Um, but when he stepped into that England role, the thing that I, f- I felt he recognized really quickly was that his real strength was in managing and actually recognizing his weaknesses. So the areas of expertise or maybe the gaps in his knowledge bank, he then filled with 
experts, right? People that were really good at their job. And we, he just created this team, you know, of backroom coaching, backroom staff sounds wrong. He just created this team, right? This whole team, players, coaching staff, um, physios, S&C, they were all focused on being world-class and and they were all world-class as well. I think that for me, that was his skill set. He was a brilliant manager. He knew what was needed to create a, a world-class team. So when you were at Leicester, the start of your career, you had a very successful few seasons. Am I right in saying from 99 to 2002, you won two Heineken Cups, four Premiership titles. What made that team so good? And there's a certain season or game that stands out most for you? Oh, I loved that period of time in my life, actually. Um, it was... Uh, because the nucleus of that Leicester side were also playing for England, we just felt unbeatable. There was also a period, there was a window during that uh, time frame that you're talking about where we were unbeaten at home for four years as a side, um, you know, which is, which is pretty unheard of these days. Uh, and I think a lot of it centred around experienced internationals and club men that had been there a long time, like Martin Johnson. You know, John was just a brilliant leader, natural leader. Excuse me, never said uh, an enormous amount, but when he did speak, um, you listened because it was, you know, it was clear and to the point, succinct, I think is probably a good way of putting it. And he always led by example. When the guys came back from England, some of them would go and have time off, day or two resting. Um, John had just come straight back into the club. He'd be on the rowing machine on Monday morning, setting a new, you know, rowing ergo record. Um, and he was just, he was super inspiring to, to be around. Um, but it, but it, if I look back at that time at Leicester and why I think it was successful and why I think the likes of Exeter and Saracens are successful now is we had, it felt like whenever we came together as a club, and when I say a club, I don't just mean the playing side. I mean, the sales team, marketing, um, gate, car parking, um, everyone. When everyone came together, which we did a couple of times a year, and the chairman, Pete Tom, who was a former player, spoke, and the, and the CEO, Pete Wheeler, who was a former player in British Lion, England International, spoke. It felt like everyone was there for the same reason. It was like we were there to be successful and we were there to do our job to the best of our ability. And if we didn't, then there was probably someone else who was going to come in and do it. <laughs> and they were probably already in the organisation. And so it felt like there was a really cohesive strong bond across the entire organization from players to um to commercial uh, and everything else medics physios and they did it because they loved it and uh, and i think it was a unique time because it was still just turning from that amateur into the professional but um, but that that's why i think it worked so well and why we were so dominant plus some really amazing players obviously <laughs> <laughs> you first went on tour with england in 1998 this tour is often called the tour from hell. Why is it called that, and what are your memories of it? <clears throat> Question for you. Why? What? Can you have a guess at why you think it was called that? Mm, I have no clue. Do you think the tour went well or went bad? Maybe it went bad. Yeah, well, that would be the right answer. Yeah, it, it was rubbish. In fact, it was rubbish. So I think I'm right in saying first game we lost record defeat ever to Australia, seventy six nil. And that was one of Johnny Wilkinson's first seasons playing at fly half and centre, I think he was then. A lot of the guys that went on that tour never, ever represented England again. Um, they got one or two caps. Uh, I remember Dominic Chapman, who was the quickest. He was a sensation at the time. He was like a 100-metre sprinter, uh, Olympic standard or, or Great Britain standard, um, playing on the wing for Richmond, who are obviously now in the lower tiers of, of, of rugby. Um and he got one cap and, and was never seen again. And there were many players like that. It just went really badly. The inter, the uh, the British Lions from '97, which was um, a fairly iconic tour, was the first time the Lions had been been South Africa away. You had living with the Lions videos, so you know all the behind the scenes stuff was going on, and people were getting to know what it was really like to be a rugby player in the amateur era. And all those boys took a rest. So basically, they were all picked in the in the in that touring side in 98 in England's tour but they all were quite rightly took a rest which meant we were enormously depleted and young lads like me who just turned 19 and were essentially still a student and living a student life were, were, were a part of that makeup but it taught me one enormous thing Harvey and that was that if I wanted to be a professional sportsman then I was going to need to change my attitude towards my sporting career um, because I was a student I was living a student lifestyle and because the game was still teetering on professional uh, on semi-professional you know amateur yes it was professional in name but 
there were still a lot of those players that were amateur from the amateur era. It taught me a huge amount about what it was going to take to be a professional athlete, like the dedication, the focus and the discipline, the self-discipline. So I went away and I spent a couple of years figuring those things out, developing my game. And, and I didn't get a call up again until 2001. Um, but when I did, I made sure I took the opportunity properly. You made your England debut against Canada in 2001. What was it like making your England debut? The absolute best, mate. Without a shadow of a doubt. The only weird thing was, so Harvey, I'm not sure how often you you watch um, internationals or club games and you see the stands full, right? And there's like 80,000 people at Twickenham singing and chanting or at Wales and uh, in the Principality, is it called now? You know, instead of whatever, you you think huge crowd, loud noise, must be totally awe-inspiring. Well, my first cap was on a field in Canada <laughs> and the changing rooms were about 800 metres away from the uh, pitch. There was one stand um, and that was temporary. I mean, literally, it was a farmer's field. And um, having said that, it didn't make any difference because having gone through 98 and been really disappointed with my form, my approach, my attitude. I'd really sort of tried to transform myself and and I was presented my first cap shirt the night before the game by my club coach, John Wells, who I admired enormously and still do. He was a wonderful coach. And that was really special to be there on his first England coaching job to present me with my first England cap. That was really cool. It would have been better if it was in front of maybe 80,000 people rather than <laughs> <laughs> So be it. You were selected in 2003, England squad, to go to the World Cup in Australia. What was it like to get selected? Well, the, the build-up to getting selected, Harvey, was terrifying because um, you'd worked. We'd basically been on, we'd, we'd had a sort of four-year build-up from the last World Cup, but then the pre-season was over sort of three months and there was gradual cut-off points where a squad of, I think, 45 was selected and it was gradually cut down to... I think it was 35 and the final five cuts were only made, you know, a, a month or so before we were going to depart, maybe, maybe slightly less. And we were told that we would hear from a phone call. We would get a phone call on a particular day. So I remember on that day wandering around London with my wife, my then girlfriend, now, now wife, Annie, waiting for the phone to ring. Every time it rang, panicking, looking at the phone. Oh my goodness, is this it? Is this a moment I'm going to make it or get cut? And we were sat having coffee and I was just trawling through my messages and a message came up and it just listed out a load of names. <laughs> and it was turned out it was the the England squad to, that made it into the World Cup side. So basically what, what the selectors did or the coaches was call all the players that didn't get picked and just text message the guys that did get picked. So it was like it was like a underwhelming moment because I was like waiting for this enormous phone call, and then I was just casually going through my message. I was like reading through these names, and thankfully I was on it, mate. And uh, yeah, the rest was just a delight. Then having to live up to the, the the reputation of being the number one side in the world at that that time, with all the pressure of the hopes of a nation and that we should win it, right? Heading into the World Cup, what was it, the mood within the team? Were you confident that you could have a successful World Cup? 100%. Honestly, I think I said it earlier, we just, we felt, we felt invincible. I felt invincible whenever I played, walked on that field with those blokes. It was amazing. You know, even if we were behind to New Zealand, we felt like you know, we could still come back. And we'll, I think because we proved it in the lead up to that tournament, we'd beaten all the best sides in the world at home and twicking them and away in their own backyard. So we, we were out and out favourites going into that tournament and really it was just down to us whether we had the nerve, whether the coaches could could pick the right players to to get us to that point. So it was really cool, man. It was just such a special time. But I can honestly say that I've never been so nervous the night before a match as I was the eve of the World Cup final as a 24-year-old. Oh my goodness. The Henshaws Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace and mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You had quite, on paper anyway, 
the results in the group stage and the quarterfinal and semi-final were quite convincing. I'm sure they weren't when you're actually on the pitch. But heading into the final, into the build-up to the week, how confident were you personally and the team that you could win, beat, beat Australia in Sydney? Uh, Adam, we were, we were still infinitely confident. I mean, we had a really tough encounter against Wales. We had a really tough encounter against Samoa, actually, in the, uh, in the pool stages. You know, they, I don't know whether we, you know, subconsciously felt that we could, we could walk through that game easily. But they, you know, they played brilliantly that day. And um, thankfully, we got the win, which meant we didn't face New Zealand then until potentially the final. Um, but, but waking up on the day of the final, the week of the final, it, the best bit about the week of a final is that normally you, you go hammer and, you know, hammer and nail, leaving no stone unturned in training, you know, putting in the hard yards, all the hours. But we'd done all that for months and years. And actually the joy of making it to World Cup final is that training was really low key. It was like jog throughs, walk throughs, bit of beach time, some surfing, a lot of uh, vanilla milkshakes. One of my favourite pastimes when I was on tour anywhere was trying to find the world's best vanilla milkshake. And I reckon we found it, it was uh, it was the old life lifeguard hut on Manly Beach that was transformed into a coffee shop and it did this amazing vanilla pod like milkshake. We probably had too many of them, actually. I was probably carrying a little bit extra weight <laughs> going final than, <laughs> than I intended. But um, but yeah, we were su- we were supremely confident. If you ever watched that game, we probably should have beaten them by two or three tries. But um, we didn't quite. We weren't quite as polished as we should have been. It wouldn't have been as exciting if you had beat them easily. <laughs> no, true, man. It was a great final. I was on the bench, so it was just terrifying as well being on the bench because you're watching this game. Seesaw. You have got two brilliant kickers in Elton Flatley and Johnny Wilkinson, and they're both nailing it. And it's like a point here, we're ahead. A point there, the Aussies are ahead. A point. A point. And being on the bench, when you're playing, it's great because that's the comfort zone. When, you, when you're waiting to get on, that's when it's uncomfortable. And I just I remember all the demons in my head, right? As a professional athlete, you want to be on contributing to make a difference because you believe you're, you know, you're one of the best players. Um, and then all of a sudden, as the game got closer towards the end, I found my, my mind playing tricks on me. And I was having to repress all these demons, which I managed to do, thankfully, by the time I got on. You came on as a sub? I did, know. I came on... Um, so <clears throat> Richard Hill, who'd got injured early in the, in the campaign, who I came in for basically and played the majority of the games up until the, the quarterfinal, no, the semifinal. So I, I started the quarterfinal against Wales. Hilly then came back for the semifinal against France, which was obviously disappointing for me as a young man, but he was a world-class player. And that meant that I was also on the bench for the final. I actually played really well though, which was, which was great for me during the games I had. But nothing, there's nothing more nerve-wracking, I don't think, than <clears throat> being on, on the bench. Nothing prepares you. You know, you can you can prepare for playing a game because that's what you do in training. You don't prepare to sit on the bench and watch everyone train and then come on at some point. So, you know, learning learning a few key skills off Dave Redding and Dave Aldred about mental preparation and rehearsing the game the night before, trying to stay calm, all that type of stuff was was key, but 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 challenging to say the least. So you did have a part to play in the, the winning kick. Am I right in thinking you caught the you caught the ball from the line out, and obviously the ball then went out to Matt Dawson, who, who did a few dummies, and back to Johnny Wilkinson. What was your memory of of just before the kick, of the kick going over, of kind of the minute after the kick? Was it all just a blur? No, do you know what I have, and I don't know whether I have this memory now because you tell the story often, um, especially if you're at rugby dinners or what have you. But the the penultimate stages of the game, like the last two minutes, I I have a clear image in my mind, right? So Martin Johnson and Lawrence Delalio combined to give away a penalty, and what I remember from that moment is that there was no there was no sort of chaotic concern, there was no fear. Um, Martin Johnson just brought all the team in, despite despite him being the player that potentially gave away the penalty, and said, "Lads, don't worry, <clears throat> Elton will kick this." From the next kickoff, we'll kick long. Mudos, that was me. It was my nickname. Mudos, you put pressure on the, on the catcher. If uh, if the ball's recycled, we want then you to to put pressure on the kicker, which was one of the things that sort of I had to do during my playing days was pressurise kickers and fly halves. And then he said that we'll get the ball back in or around the halfway line and we'll go into a zigzag pattern. And that's exactly what we did. And it was it was amazing to just have that clarity and confidence. And you asked in some of the earlier questions about, you know, 
did you believe you would win? And, you know, what was, how did it feel? We, we, we were just so confident because of past experience. We've been there, done it. We had guys that, you know, were clear and calm under pressure, like Martin Johnson. And, um, and then we did, we just fell into place. I would also say that we had rehearsed um, this eventuality thousands of times in training. So once the coaches knew we were the best team in the world prior to, in the, in the training sessions, um, prior to the World Cup, the last 10 minutes or so would be uh, would be rehearsing the last two minutes of a game. So it could be needing a try to win, having to defend our own goal line, needing a drop goal. So when it came to it, really, it was simple. <laughs> Sounds easy. Yeah. How did you celebrate winning the World Cup? I can say on here, mate. Um, <laughs> we we celebrated, as, as any team should do, um, long and hard into the night. It was a special moment in our lives that we... We got to do as a group of players who'd worked enormously hard over a long period of time to achieve it. And we walked back into the change room, opened a couple of tinnies, sat tinnies, that sounds very Aussie, <laughs> cans of beer or lager. And, uh, and we sat down in the changing room and, and shared a few sort of stories and moments and just reflections on what, how, how have we done this? But it was, it was surreal. I would also say that there was a moment of complete numbness where I wasn't sure what or how I should feel. And it was almost like I should be really excited and elated and all these things, but actually I was a little bit like low. Um, and I think what, what I put that down to in hindsight is now that when you achieve everything you've ever wanted to do by the age of 24, you so there's suddenly like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do next type feeling? And the realisation is actually the joy comes from the journey. And what I, what I loved during the World Cup and beyond in the years to come was, was the process and the people and the journey that you go on and the hard work that you put in. And the success is just a, a tiny, tiny part of that journey. And moving away now from after the World Cup, am I right as well in thinking that you hold a record for being the first Englishman sent off at Twickenham for punching your Leicester teammate Tuolagi during England v Samoa? That must have been quite an awkward time when you met back up with him at Leicester. Well, I should uh, I should probably reiterate the fact that we weren't on the same team <laughs> on the day. <laughs> he was playing for Samoa. Um, yes, no, you're absolutely right. So in 2000, I think it was 2005, I want to say, we played Samoa and um, the game was going pretty well. We were winning fairly comfortably, but Samoa had, during the course of that game, been putting a lot of late hits, cheap shots. And, and as players, we were getting frustrated and, and I have, uh, you know, almost... Uh, I don't know what the right way of uh, unfair is. If, if something feels unfair, I, I can take it quite, you know, personally. And, and I felt like we were being unfairly treated during the course of this game. And, um, and Alex Tualangi, man who's, uh, one of Manu's older brothers, took out Mark Quito in the air. And <clears throat> I actually went in to separate them both initially because Alex punched Mark in, on the chin after having taken him out in the air. And my initial thoughts of, you know, peacemaking were then... Didn't last very long. Uh, it didn't last very long. We're overtaken by raw emotion when I saw Alex punch Mark in the face and that was just, the red mist descended, lads, let's say, and uh, I threw, I don't know, 30 punches or something like that. <laughs> the overquality back then. And, they, you know, for me, uh, the, the game was changing. It was in an era when it was changing and um, and the sort of self-policing that we'd been used to was, and the, and the violent element of the game was was being really knuckled down on quite rightly. And, you know, I was sent off and, and, and Alex was sent off. And we, we did meet in, in training and it was, well, we actually met in the tunnel. And, you know, our heads were still all over the shop because we're dealing with the emotion of the situation. You know, for anyone that suffers an emotional overload, you will know that thinking goes out the window and, you know, an impulse and everything takes over. What they, it's called an amygdala hijack, I think, you know, Steve Peters' book about the, the chimp paradox and all these sorts of things. Um, so that's exactly what happened to me and, and Alex. And, but, we managed as we walked down the, the tunnel at Twickenham to to calm our our, our inner chimps and uh, and bring the hum, hum, humanity or the humility I'm not sure which words right back into the into the fore and when we saw each other in a tunnel we just had a little handshake and a man hug and uh, and it was all it was all addressed but yeah the club weren't particularly happy because obviously it was missing <laughs> two two of its more prominent players for the game in the following weekend. <laughs> and for several weeks to come as I got banned for eight weeks but yeah if you're going to be known for something I suppose yeah maybe <laughs> it's a good record to hold <laughs> I don't know about good <laughs> it's a record I'll go with that 
In 2005, you were selected for the Lions tour to tour New Zealand. It wasn't the greatest tour of the Lions. Are they lost? 3-0. What are your memories of that tour? That it was disappointing, I think, is why you said 3-0 there, Harvey. So that was, you know, again, putting on a Lions jersey. You, you remember all the previous history that's gone before and those great sides that have gone out. And you want to emulate it. So to be a part of a side that you know, had a 3 0 drubbing basically was really disappointing, having not long previously won a World Cup with a similar group of players. But the thing I loved the most by far and away was getting to know the other nations players, like some Williams, who I, you know, battled against for years on the open side flank when England played Wales. Um, Shane Byrne, who was a hooker for Ireland, you know, with this massive mop of long flowing uh brown hair in a horrendous mullet. I mean, he was just brilliant <laughs> to be around. Who else? Uh, Shane Horgan, um, Brian O'Driscoll, who was captain on that tour and got and got sadly injured. Gareth Thomas, um, Ryan Jones, just all these guys you got to meet you'd spent years despising and hating, really, because they're the opposition and you want to be them. And I actually realised they're just normal guys with the same drive, ambition, attitude to training. Um, and desire to win as you and and it was a really special uh, experience and it was one I would love to have done again but sadly form and injury uh, wouldn't allow it but but for those reasons still a special memory. Four years later you are playing in the World Cup in France England reached the final of the tournament losing to South Africa in the final what are your memories of that tournament? Um, you guys are well prepped with all these questions right? <laughs> Is this hours of uh, hours of research on the computer rather than homework? I bet. <laughs> two thousand and seven was. Do you know what? I actually remember two thousand and seven with as much fondness as I do two thousand and three because we went into that tournament rank outsiders, lacking form, consistency of selection, and and play. We we narrowly beat America in the first game. Phil Vickery, our captain, got <laughs> got banned for two games for tripping up a player. We then lost thirty six nil to South Africa in the second game which was a record defeat at a World Cup. And as a playing group and coaching group, we sat down and had like one of those heart-to-heart sessions that teams have from time to time. And the unanimous decision was that we were just letting ourselves down and that what we were doing at the minute, what the coaches were asking us to do wasn't working, that we needed to change something. And people like Mike Cat, Ollie Barkley, um, Johnny Wilkinson, Andy Gomez, all you know, players that stepped up and said, right, this is how I think we need to be playing took the four and and the coaches listened and, and we just focused on one thing in every game and somehow from losing a game 36 now in a world cup to south africa we ended up in another world cup final and on the way to that world cup final we beat australia who'd smashed everyone in their path during the course of that tournament and who'd already booked their flights and accommodation for the semi-final you know prior to playing us in the uh, quarterfinal which <laughs> was to our ears so we beat them one you know by one point we then beat France in their own backyard, you know, neutral venue of Stade de France, <laughs> playing France in the semi-final of the World Cup. Yeah, so I have I have many fond memories. And actually, my abiding memory, being on the pitch after the game, was that we didn't deserve to win and that I felt it would have been a slight travesty if we had. Because for me, our World Cup win was getting to that final from where we had been. And I felt if we'd won in that final, and I hope the players that didn't get to taste victory in 03 don't um, hate me for saying this, but I felt we didn't deserve to win it. And and it would have underplayed the amount of effort, work and planning that went into winning in 03 because it felt like we sort of chanced it in 2007. But to show what can be done with sheer grit and determination with those guys was really special. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Tetnall Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulating learning and working spaces for students and the community. 
We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. You must have played with some great jokers when playing for England. Which players were the best at jokes and pranks? And what was the best prank you ever seen? Oh, jokes and pranks. We used to have like, uh, I'm always conscious of saying these things, but if you ever fell asleep, like during the course of a day in your room and we had like single beds, someone would invariably come in and bed flip you. So basically that meant lifting up your bed until it was high enough that you just slid off the end of the bed into the <laughs> like mess. And there's nothing you can do, right, because you're asleep. That was always quite annoying, especially after hours and hours of training when you just want to rest. What else? People used to hide in cupboards and jump out. There was this thing called Danger. I think it came from Friends, the TV show Friends in the, in the late 90s. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, they used to sh- jump out shouting Danger. I remember doing that once, actually, to two blokes who were probably the hardest individuals I'd ever played with. Danny Grucop, six foot seven. 20-odd stone, tough as nails, black belt in karate. Julian White, farmer, 23 stone, short tank. I hid in both their cupboards. Danny's first. And when he came into his room, I just jumped out. And the six-foot-seven bloke, like, screamed and fell back into the toilet on the floor, <laughs> which, which was perfect because it gave me just enough time to open the door and run away before he chased me. And then I did exactly the same thing about 10 minutes later to a chap called Julian White, who was an incredibly tough human being. But everyone has a reaction, right, to being scared. Anyway, so I hid in his toilet and he had no idea that I was there. And I jumped out, dangered him, and his reaction was the absolute opposite. He literally grabbed me with one hand around the neck and drove <laughs> back into the into the bathroom. I'm going, why is it me, mate? It's funny, it's me. It's funny. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. There was lots of those great, those great characters, Steve Thompson and... You know, so I ruined with Steve Thompson for a long time and he ended up spending a lot of um, a lot of his time with not many clothes on. Um, and I'm not sure why, but you know, that was not really a prank, but it was just awful to witness. In 2010, you left Leicester to join Bath. Why did you decide to leave and join Bath? Well, uh, what I'd love to say it was my decision, uh, Harvey, but actually Leicester Tigers, who I'd been at from the age of 14 as a youth team player, to the age of 30, I think it was, when they released me, basically. So they, at the end of uh, an England training camp, I'd just been appointed England captain. Um, I got a phone call to say that I was uh, I was basically surplus to requirements at the club and uh, and could go and look for another place to, to play my rugby. And, and that was how I ended up at Bath. So, you know, once I got that phone call, then went away looking for clubs to play. I always said that I'd never join another premiership team because I didn't want to play against... Leicester I had so much respect for them as a, as a club and my teammates. But actually, the noises that I heard from those guys that went and played in France was that the experience was very different. And if I didn't enjoy the rugby, I didn't think I'd enjoyed the life, no matter how nice spirits and the beach and the coast and the sun might be. So for me, the, the rugby was the most important thing. So Bath had always been rivals of Leicester and had a new owner and, and lots of well, Danny Grucock and Ollie Barkley names that I mentioned already, Lee Mears, David Flatman. Um, lots of quality players and and it felt right. And I'm still here, right? So it was 10 years ago, <laughs> actually 12 years ago, and I'm still here. So this is sat in sunny Somerset, enjoying enjoying the sun, actually. And it is just about shining off my forehead, which is quite <laughs> And then a year later, in the next World Cup, you were named captain. That must have been a great honour for you. It was. Um, and it was certainly something I never expected. I don't know if you guys have ever captained a team, but, you know, I had a couple of opportunities during my younger days at school with county teams, but only a handful in the premiership. And I suppose because of the longevity of my career and the other leadership roles I'd had within the team, that when the captain got injured, there was Steve Borthwick, now Tigers coach, Martin Johnson, who was my coach at that time, said, mate, look, you're going to be captain. And I wasn't sure how I felt about it at the time because I was nervous. I, I didn't... I didn't know whether I was captain material. You know, you know, would I make good decisions? Would my teammates respect me? Would I be able to, you know, keep track of the scoreline and interpret all the rules and what the referee's saying and, you know, keep everyone together off the field and all those things. And I suppose ultimately I decided that 
it was too good an opportunity to miss. And I I loved it. I loved the experience. It was very emotional in my first game, which was the last game of the Six Nations in 2010. We narrowly lost to France. We then went on tour that summer to Australia. Um, we became only the third side in, in the history, in the RFU's history um, to win over in Australia, which was pretty cool. Uh, with a young side that included Ben Youngs, Courtney Laws, Dylan Hartley, Dan Cole, and a few other blokes, and and that was it. You know, that was that was a special time. And they went on to the World Cup, and and you know, I, I only have frustrating memories of that World Cup because leading leading a team or England at a World Cup is a hugely um, important moment. And you know, having been a part of two previous tournaments already. I only look back on that and think, you know, I clearly didn't do a good enough job as a captain because there were lots of st- lots of moments in time that derailed our playing, um, stuff that happened off the field that derailed our focus and ability to concentrate on what we needed to do on the pitch. And although, you know, I wasn't a part of that as captain, it was my responsibility and, and the coach's responsibilities to make sure those things didn't happen. So, yeah, I look back on on that World Cup with, with regret, I suppose. And... Uh, and the only other regret I have in my career is actually I wasn't captain at a younger age because I learned so much during that year and a half that I was captain. You know, the, the joys of winning in Australia and then the Six Nations and then going to a World Cup and the disappointment that I think I was 33, 32. My international career was was done. I wasn't good enough anymore and uh, and my body had had enough. So I would love to have had it earlier so I could put into practice everything that I'd learned from those, those year and a half. You retired later that year after a very successful career. And since retiring, you set up the Lewis Moody Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about your foundation and what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So we've actually, we've set up two organisations, but I'll tell you about the foundation first. So the foundation um, was set up after I met a young lad called Joss Rowley Stark, really talented young rugby player, brilliant, brilliant man, lovely, inspiring human being. Um, He was 14 when I first met him. And sadly, he passed away a year and a half later, um, of a brain tumour. Actually, it was a rare form of cancer, not a brain tumour. And after meeting him and being inspired by him, Annie and myself decided to, well, we wanted to focus our charitable attention in one area and try and really make a difference. So we set up the foundation in Joss's memory, the Lewis Moody Foundation, to support young families living with brain tumours. And the reason we chose brain tumours was that then and now brain tumours um, were the biggest killer of under 40s and children bar none, yet they received the smallest amount of cancer funding. Um, and we're hoping that, you know, that 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 figure, those stats are starting to change and move in the right direction, but it's still slow and still more needs to happen. So um, I'm really proud that we've been able to make a small difference in, uh, in, in those areas over the last six, seven years now. But it's, but it's given me, you know, meeting Joss really, you know, meeting a young man whose dad was asking me for help and coming, I come up to Sheffield and support my mate, support my boy and his team, raise a bit of money. They were asking me for help, but really they helped me more than I could ever help Joss. You know, they gave me a purpose post-playing um, and a reason to really get up every day and uh, and attack life, right, and, and try and make a, a small difference. So it's a, it's a huge part of my life now, taking people on challenges all over the world, raising uh, raising money for brain tumors and people, people living with brain tumors. And, uh, and the other organisation we set up was a company called Mad Dog Sports, so my nickname used to be Mad Dog. But I was never particularly academic, and rugby sort of saw me through school, really. It supported me in many ways, socially, mentally, you know, through the coaches, the work the coaches did with me, um, and physically from an outlet, you know, frustration and things like that. So um, I wanted to create an organisation that could support more young men and women um, through school, and, uh, and we created Mad Dog Sport about... Actually, do you know what? I think it was a year or around the same time as, as the foundation, you know, so I was a sucker for punishment do it all at the same time. But again, you know, the, the successes that we've had in the schools that we're, um, that we have our programs in is, has been a joy to be a part of. And, and what I've recognized since retiring is that when everyone says, Oh, you know, your leadership skills and rugby and, you know, everything that you've got such a, there'll be such a natural blend and a transition for you. Actually, none of those things really mattered. It was what what mattered to me was was working with people. Why I loved playing the game was was playing with my teammates and supporting my teammates. And and I think that's what um, has really stood out for me in retirement is that how can I support other people has been the key to me um, enjoying life and trying to make a bit of a difference, I suppose. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Lewis. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Harvey, Adam, mate, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, I hope I haven't put anyone to sleep. You know, people might be <laughs> a late night sort of going to bed, <laughs> going to bed. <laughs> but no, it's been a pleasure. I love what you guys do. Thank you for thank you for chatting. Harvey, enjoy the rest of your day. You've got to go back into the lessons now, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so. Uh... <laughs> Not too long after. Nearly, nearly home time. Yeah. <laughs> well, cheers, chaps. Take care. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much, Lewis. Really, really appreciate it. And, and all the best. Thank you so much. Take care. Cheers, guys. So, Harvey, amazing podcast. Congratulations again. Thank Lewis, you. Lewis has just gone. How did you feel that podcast went? Actually went really well. Um, I was just really excited to hear about his career and how everything went. Yeah. Is there a certain thing that he said that you liked the most or stood out the most for you? Um, just, the th- just the thing about doing self-discipline and also changing your attitude towards different things in life. And that just really inspired me. Thank you so much, Devin, for listening to the podcast and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. Please follow us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of our episodes in full. If you are listening to this on your iPhone, can you please go and give us a rating and review it? It really helps to grow our show. Thank you and see you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.